Welcome to the RevRec Gals podcast, where two consultants with over 30 years combined experience share stories about the implementation and challenges of revenue recognition accounting. I'm Susan. And I'm Natasha. And we are the RevRec Gals. Welcome to another episode of the RevRec Gals. This episode is focused on contract modifications. Natasha, I know you have been involved with many contract modifications. Give us some background on the different treatments of a contract modification, and let's talk about what we have to look for when we're deciding how to account for them. I mean, modifications, I actually think, is a place where the new guidance under ASC 606 really shed a lot of light on this topic in a way that for me anyway, was not as clear under 605. And what I like best about it is it really takes this substance over form approach. The guidance does get very specific on what you should be looking for when you think about modifications. But ultimately, if you take a step back, just because you paper something one way should not lead you to a different answer when the substance of what's going on is different. Or what I mean when I say that, the way modifications show up, it could be an amendment. Everyone sees an amendment and they say, oh, a contract's been modified. But it also could come through as a separate, distinct order form that adds on to an existing contract. And that could just be a preference and how it's papered according to the particular company or client that you're working with when, in substance, the same exact thing is happening. Is that something you've seen where a a company might do it both ways, where there's both an amendment or an order form approach for the same sort of purchase? I do, especially larger companies or larger customers. They may have a master agreement and they may be purchasing large quantities for specific projects. Instead of issuing new POs, they may do an amendment. And that amendment, especially if there's professional services involved, will have a lot of details in it. And so they are very distinct purchase decisions, but the paper is an amendment to the contract and not issuing of a new PO. It's funny because if you see that paperwork coming through from an accounting perspective, if you see an add-on order form or just a plain old order form for X new quantity of, of software XYZ, you might not know if there's an existing contract in place at all. It could just look like its very own, you know, separate contract without even knowing that it's an existing contract. Or it could be an amendment where it's very clearly connected to a prior purchase. So it's really something you have to have proper processes in place to be able to identify when these are coming through. Ultimately, what the guidance says is there's a few different ways to treat these modifications. So the first step is just figuring out, are you within the modification guidance to begin with? The way the guidance describes it is very broad. Is it increasing the scope or the performance obligations within the contract and or changing the price? That could be pretty much anything. And so I think this is where things can get a little bit gray, where you want to have good processes in place to determine at what point should you be evaluating every single contract to see whether it's a modification of an existing contract or not. And the good news is, in my mind, operationally, the easiest answer is to treat these contracts separately, to treat these new sort of quote-unquote modifications as a separate distinct contract. And the good news is, in the guidance, if it's distinct performance obligations and it's priced commensurate with SSP, you can do that. So for many organizations, if they regularly sell within SSP, 
and their offerings are generally distinct, or at least a series of distinct services in the case of, you know, a SaaS type arrangement, then you're good. You don't really have to do much. But unfortunately, that is not always the case. (laughs) One of the things I tend to see when I know there's a modification is the amendment has clauses which replace a section of the original contract. And so they'll actually say, we are replacing this section to add more quantity or to change the pricing or something that then changes the essence of that contract. On the professional services side, it's often a little easier because they will do a change order form or they'll do a revised statement of work. So those are big clues that you are probably likely in modification land. But to your point, if you have this change of clause where you're just changing the quantity, but you're not changing the price, then there may be no impact to your allocation anyway. And that's a good point. So I hear the term all the time, rip and replace contracts, or what quite literally will terminate an existing contract and then start a new contract. Before the end of the existing contract, you say, okay, we're going to terminate with, let's say, four months left in that contract, and we're going to sign a new contract for 12 months, and we're going to add additional volume, whether that be users or usage. They want to sort of upgrade their level of service. And this is an, an important strategy from a sales perspective. If you can lock in a customer to a longer period of time rather than just the four months remaining on their contract term, there's an advantage to that. Well, that can be papered either as a rip and replace amendment where it actually goes back and replaces the original language, or it could be papered as a separate contract. Either way, it's doing the same thing and we need to be accounting for it consistently. And so I think it's really good to be really attentive and have processes and controls in place to identify when that's happening because it won't always be obvious based on the face of the contract. Sometimes though, you may see a credit come through for the remainder of the original term. And that's also another indication that where you're really starting a new contract. That's such a good point too, because there's how it's papered, right? How the legal paperwork comes through. And then it's how does it flow through in your system, which could be different. And it could be entered as an order form differently. It could be invoiced and credited differently, depending on how people have their processes set up. And so what I've seen before is, I'll never forget, I had a client where the auditors saw their credit memo report and really freaked out because the volume was so high. Well, it turned out that most of those credit memos, which were quite significant, were actually these rip and replace contracts where customers were being credited and refunded, but then they were immediately being re-invoiced for that same amount and more to reflect this rip and replace contract concept. Operationally, it absolutely shows up on the credit memo side, which can be a nightmare in and of itself. That's a whole nother story. (laughs) But you're right. That's a part of the process that needs to be integrated into the contract modification process as well. That being said, once you're in modification land, you really have to figure out whether, number one, the modification is distinct as far as the whatever the new performance obligations under the new contract are distinct from the old and figure out, do they reflect SSP? I know that sounds simple at face value, but realistically that can be super complicated and different and changed based on the facts and circumstances of a particular company or organization. 
Do tell us about a time you've seen a tricky scenario. I had a really interesting client where when you're trying to figure out the SSP, comparing it to the incremental. So that's the key here is let's say you are selling more, there's an add-on. When they order that sort of new additional add-on, you also have to account for what they already have. And so the way it was getting papered and the way it was coming through the system is they would say, okay, we're going to have 12 months of product XYZ for a quantity of 100. What wasn't shown on that paper is that they were getting credited for six months of product XYZ for 40. If you just look at the price that they're paying on here, maybe it says $40,000 and SSP would be $100,000. Well, they've already paid that $60,000. And instead of actually crediting it on this paperwork, It was sort of happening behind the scenes. And so then we had to go through this manual process of attaching or crediting it out from an SSP perspective in order to really adjust the contract to reflect the appropriate amount for the particular contract. Because it wasn't that they were getting this crazy discount. It's that they've already paid for something and this new contract coming through reflects what they've already been paid Those are tricky situations because the original portion is still getting recognized over the original term, but it needs to be updated to this new term. And so that's where your system can't handle it unless there is like a cancel and replace that then gives that remaining portion the new term over which it's supposed to be recognized. There's a system decision here. When you get these circumstances, do you cancel out the existing revenue schedule that's already in the system or do you layer on top of it? And so you can kind of cancel out what's in there and start a fresh new one, or you can layer on top of it, but you could get into a scenario where you have daisy chain modifications. What I mean by that, let's say the performance obligations are distinct, but it was not commensurate of SSP. What you do from an accounting perspective is you have to terminate the existing contract, take any deferred or unbilled balance as of that date, and then reshuffle the deck with the new contract to perform allocation and schedule out your new revenue accounting timing. On paper, technical accounting guidance, that's what you do. In practice, in your system, you have a choice. Do you book an adjusting entry on top of the existing revenue schedule to make it sum up to the correct technical answer? Or do you actually go in and cancel that contract and move everything over? Meanwhile, you have to think about where the credits are going to. Are they going against that original contract and getting canceled out? There's a lot of moving pieces and some companies would prefer not to issue credit memos and then reissue new invoices under a new contract. You really have to work in conjunction with that AR team. What does the customer want to see? What's confusing or more effective from a communication to your customer perspective. There's a lot of considerations there operationally on even now that you have the right technical answer, what is it actually going to look like in your system? The system is always the hard part because they're (laughs) never set up really to handle everything we need them to. Well, and then when you get to this concept of daisy chains, if you have a practice, which I've seen, this is a very common sales strategy to what they call 
early renew or, you know, upsell before the end of a contract. So instead of waiting till the contract is coming up for renewal and then signing what might be considered sort of a natural renewal, they'll come early and say, hey, we want to upsell you and we'll let you out of your existing contract sooner if you want to upgrade. And isn't this so great? And so there's a habit or a practice of doing this. And so if you're constantly in this pattern, they might even give a big discount because of it to incentivize, which means you don't have necessarily pricing that's commensurate with SSP. And then you could be in a position where you have a termination of a contract and you need to reallocate the remaining deferred. And then you do it again 10 months later. And again, 10 months later, and now all of a sudden you have this daisy chain of contracts that are are modifying one after the other, after the other, after the other. So I guess from a high level, when I think about the technical way that we would treat this, it's okay, you could have a separate contract if it's distinct and it is commensurate with SSP. If it's distinct and not commensurate with SSP, that's when you get into the termination of an existing contract and the start of a new But then we have the third example, the dreaded cumulative catch-up when you don't have distinct performance obligations. I actually haven't seen that too much. Have you seen many examples of that? I see that mostly with professional services where they'll do a change order and they'll add on additional work. And then you have to look at, is this additional work distinct from the original statement of work that they've been contracted to do? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's where I would expect to see it for most tech companies, just because I think many tech companies try to make their offerings really focus on the software side because that's where the margin typically is. And so there's less emphasis on the professional services and there's more standalone distinct offerings. But once you start to get into these less distinct offerings, usually that is in combination with some customization or professional services that really dig into providing a full solution versus distinct technology solutions. So that makes perfect sense to me that that's where you would see it. I do think I have seen that also before in that context of sort of a highly specialized offering that was different than actually the typical offering that that my particular client had. Now, on the flip side of all this is when you get orders that regularly aren't contract modifications. For instance, if you have a reseller and that reseller is sending in, they may send in multiple purchase orders in a day, but each of these purchase orders is probably associated with a different end customer. Many companies I've worked with, they look at each of these transactions as a standalone transaction and not a contract modification. They may look at and say, hey, we're going to look at all the end users. And if they do have another order from the same end user, then we're going to look at it and see is the pricing the same? And do we need to treat it as a contract modification? Or are they just ordering incremental product? In which case, if they're similar in price, then your allocation is going to be the same whether you combine them or treat them as separate transactions. What that highlights to me, well, number one, that highlights to me There's an overlay here, a little bit of the contract combination guidance too, because you would also have to consider if you're getting multiple orders from a particular customer or reseller in particular, you have to think about the contract combination guidance as well. I, with you, have seen many times where a client has 
said, hey, this is a reseller. These are all distinct. They're part of different end negotiations. The way this is set up, there's even different salespeople involved with these different end customers. And so you actually end up kind of using a lot of the same reasons or rationale for saying, hey, this isn't this isn't the same contract that's being modified. You know, it's a completely different end user. Ultimately, companies have to come up with processes that make this make sense. For companies who regularly interact with few customers per quarter and have large dollar value deals, then yes, you can assess this on a contract by contract basis. Low volume, high dollar value. For any company that is set up such that they have a higher volume of contracts each quarter with a lower dollar value on average, it's impossible to look at these on a contract by contract basis. And so you really have to put qualifications out there or standard operating procedures. At what point do you evaluate these deals? And how do you know which ones to really look at in detail? Because you can't possibly think every contract coming through, is it connected to an existing contract? And some companies will look at materiality. So they may look at do I have the same customer ordering again? And if I had to reallocate, would that reallocation be material? And if the answer is no, that may be an operational process that they just leave those alone and they focus on the ones that really could potentially have an impact. Because as you said, some of these companies, their volumes are just so high, there's no possible way to get in and look at everything. What I've seen is that some companies will just say, hey, All our products are distinct. There's a few rare exceptions where we have professional services involved. And those are these really large value deals that are over here in a separate part of our revenue policy. And sure, we'll look at those one by one. But everything else is distinct. And we often sell within SSP. And so maybe what they do is they just flag deals that are sold outside of SSP and then look at those to see if they're related to an existing contract. So that's one way that I've seen it narrowed down. Another way is alongside a contract combination procedure, maybe each quarter you look at you know how many deals were signed with existing customers. Another one is if you work closely with your deal desk or your contract operations, having some sort of flag, say, is this an upsell? Is it a modification? And then you can go in and look at upsells. And then what you mentioned earlier, looking at credit memos, actually the credit memo process is where it gets flagged. That might be what triggers the modification evaluation or process on the revenue accounting side. Of course, what you said, materiality is important, but the funny thing with that is that you could be in a position where you you have a concession. You could end up with a very small dollar value on an upsell that's actually quite significant. And so that's the one that I always see is like, okay, if I put my auditor hat on, if I were the auditor, what would I be asking about from a materiality perspective? Not only do you have to look at the dollar value, but you have to look at the quantity on top of it to make sure that you don't have a concession. And usually in my experience, anything that's that dramatic, like let's say you have a customer that's super upset about something. And so you usually say there's a lot of people involved. It goes up the chain as far as getting a discount that high. And so everyone knows about it. Those circumstances, they shouldn't be happening regularly. And any big discount like that, that's truly represents a concession you should already be aware of before it even gets signed. That's how I typically see that. The control for that is usually before it's even signed so that everyone is aware of it. 
Well, usually you have some cadence of approval for discounting. To your point, when you start getting into those really large discounts, there's got to be a reason and it gets escalated pretty high in the organization and then spread around and talked about and everybody, including revenue, typically knows about it by the time it gets booked. Sadly, this gets complicated. And I've gone through and done a lot of use cases for clients and it's not easy. It's not straightforward. It's complex. And so my recommendation is always come up with a process where you can basically get out of doing a complex analysis on 80 to 90 plus percent of your transactions. And then when it does get hairy, you just have to know like you have some use cases, you have a policy that you're following, but you might have to go back into the guidance. You might have to really sit down and look at each of these as a one-off because sometimes it does get complex, especially if you're talking about concessions and often there's multiple things going on in one deal, particularly if it's a big strategic customer. My recommendation is always set up your process such that you don't have to do anything or you have to do very little for most of these transactions and then have a mechanism for flagging when you might need a little extra TLC to get it through. This concludes our conversation on contract modifications. Let others know about the RevRec Gals podcast. You can get notified of new episodes and other activities by following us on LinkedIn. Feedback and topic suggestions are always welcome through LinkedIn or by emailing us at revretgals at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. The examples discussed are based on specific company dynamics. Check in with your auditors before making changes to your current processes. Specializing in revenue recognition may result in employment for life. Please consult your friends and family before pursuing this career.